I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. All right, guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. Good day, guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us Bruce Jackson. Bruce Jackson is a wildlife conservationist. How are you going, Bruce? Yeah, well, thanks, Adrian. G'day, Steve. Thank you. Um, mate, so you've been working with wildlife for about 30 years. Yes. And particularly the more endangered species. Correct. So I first met you back in the Earth Sanctuary days. That's right, yes, yes. You were a tour guide at uh, Wallawong at the time. Yeah, that yeah. was going back probably about 20-odd years ago now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you got me my first experience with actual trapping of native animals and getting involved with uh, uh, translocation of species, which is a pretty important thing when you've got feral-free areas. Yeah, well, we did a lot of movement of animals because... Um, Earth Sanctuary's mission was to, you know, create these um, sanctuaries with that were fenced and feral-free, and that you know we could put back the wildlife. Um, and so we did a lot of moving of of animals from sanctuary to sanctuary um, across hundreds of miles sometimes, and you know, van loads of animals. <laughs> so it was quite exciting. So an Earth Sanctuary, that's a part of Australia that's had the feral animals eradicated. Yes. And a fence to keep said animals out Correct. and to also keep the, the desired endangered species within? Yes. So not so that the animals were not kept in cages, right? so they had the freedom of the whole of the sanctuary and all the habitats within to roam around, okay? Um, so that they were virtually wild animals, not, not caged animals that had to be fed. They were self-sufficient. And all we, re- all we had to do was remove the threats of the ferals. Must have been a pretty exciting time. Yeah, it was pretty good actually. It sort of started in the in the late nineties for me anyway um, when I started with the sanctuaries, and uh, my first job was raking the fence line of rocks at Yukamara Sanctuary. So I spent days just raking rocks of where the fence was going to go, and then I came back to um, uh, the head office. Uh, which was at Warrawong at the time, um, and did some other work there, and then went back out to Yukamara and helped putting up the fence um, and straining wire. And it was over summer too, so it was bloody hot at times too. Well, yeah, for those that don't know, Yukamara's out in the Mallee. Yes. So that would have been big chunks of limestone that you were raking out the way. Well, there were the lots of little pebbles, which is the problem. Um, the big chunks that were all taken care of, it was all the small stones that may lift the fence up off the ground and create a, like a tunnel effect. Um, they had to go. So that was what all the raking was about. Been out to Yukamara. It's an amazing spot. They've got numbats in there. Yeah. I think that was a real highlight for me. I mean, it took months, years, really, to get permission to release numbats to Yukamara Sanctuary. We had to write a management plan for the sanctuary that had to be endorsed by the minister so that we had permissions to do all of that. We had to contact the people, you know, the, the numbats obviously only were only extant in Western Australia, um, in the Wheatbelt area there down at Dryandra Forest. So we had to get permission to get them and get them over and then release them. So that took a year virtually just to get all that in place. And it was November 1993 that the first 15 numbats came from WA to Yukamara Sanctuary. I picked them up from the airport, all in little boxes, and then we ferried them out to the sanctuary. And then, um, because they're a, a diurnal animal, you know, they're not, 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 not nocturnal like the, the rest of the animals in Australia. Um, these were diurnal, so we could re-release them in the late afternoon, which was fantastic. It's an unusual thing having a diurnal or daytime marsupial, isn't it? It, it is, yeah, yeah, it is. They sort of get up about... When it's when it's warm enough that you take your jumper off, that's when the numbats start to come out of their burrows or their hollow logs. And the reason why is that's when the termites start... That temperature range is when the termites start to get active as well. So once the termites are active and in the ground, um, in their little galleries, then the numbats are out there after them. Because that's all they eat, basically. To, uh, numbats is eat termites. So numbats were once in South Australia anyway, but they just became extinct? Yes, correct, yeah. yeah. Is that due to feral animals, cats, foxes? Absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah. 
So the only place you could bring them from was WA at that point? Yes. Yeah, yeah that was the only population that, uh, sorry, the only area where dumbbats were still in the wild. So we did wild-to-wild transfer. These were not captive bred animals. Um, they were caught in WA, um, collared, radio collared, and then released again. So that they had until they had 15, and then one day they went out and because they had radio collars. They could catch them all up in the one day, and then on the plane over to South, over to Adelaide, and then out to Yukamar. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. So you collared them so you didn't have to catch them and keep them in a holding bay while you got no, your numbers no, up. No, they weren't held at all. So they, they just woke up. <laughs> <laughs> they were in a box for a little while and then they were released and they were in a new spot. With some bling. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> with a nice radio collar on them. Yeah. They're a great-looking animal. They're, like they're, a, a, little, they're a little ball of muscle. They're yeah, absolute, okay. There's no fat on a numbat. You know, they're just a little ball of muscle and so strong for an animal that size. And just to hold one, you know, first numbat to be in South Australia for 100 years, just to hold one and then just let it go was just amazing, amazing experience. Have they been successful there? Yeah, they have. Yeah, yeah. Um, I haven't caught up with what's going on at Yukamara, you know, over the last couple of years, um, but I believe there's still numbats there. And uh, they became... Um, the, the population grew to an extent where we then moved them from Yukamara Sanctuary to Scotia Sanctuary as well and released them there. So that was all working well. Yeah, they're a beautiful animal to look at too. They've got those amazing stripes across their body. Their tail sticks up in there. Their fluffy tail they're sticks fluffy up. Tail. They look like yeah. a radio control yeah. car. Yeah. <laughs> and they're, and they're, not, they're not very big. No, no, they're not big at all. Tiny little animal, really. Um, smaller than your southern brown bandicoot. Yeah, yeah, okay, that's yeah, interesting. Yeah. We, were, we were up to uh, Yukamara a couple of years back helping them with a biological survey and uh, we were lucky to see two numbats both on the last day and that was I was pretty pretty happy with that. Um, the, I got a, some video footage of one yawning and its tongue came out and touched the ground and went back up its mouth. It's a remarkable tongue. Wow, that's for forking out termites, I yeah. assume. Yeah, yeah. yeah they, dig, they dig a little scratch and they intercept the galleries, which... That the termites build underground. They're about oh, 40, 50 mil under the ground, the galleries, and they can go for metres and metres and metres, tens of metres from, you know, their their nest. Um, and that's what the... Numbats don't attack the nest, you know, like a, a mound of termites. They just go out, find the galleries, and that long tongue just goes in and out the gallery and, and licks all the termites up. So Thousands like, of them a day. What their senses are then to find those galleries? It must be... Yeah, I don't know whether it's, they hear it. Mm. They must. They must hear them in the ground. Yeah, that's interesting. When we were there, um, they said that when they were doing a fence check, you must check your fence regularly, obviously, sure. to make sure there's no discrepancies. They had seen a number on the outside of the fence, so oh. they must be able to climb the fence. Yeah, well, that probably or did could. they? Yeah. Or did they? Were they always there? <laughs> All these years. Yeah. yeah. Or I mean. They could have found a way under the fence. Um, that was wombat country. And so there were wombat burrows and God knows how extensive they were inside and outside of the fence at Yukamara. Um, so they could have easily gone down a wombat burrow and popped up 20, 30 metres outside the fence on the other side. Yeah, quite possible. Well, there you go. They could yeah. be back in the wild in South Australia. Soft release. <laughs> Soft, Soft release. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that would be good. But if you're going to do that, then you need buffer zones that are baited and have your feral animals controlled. A big concerted effort. Yes, um, yeah. Do you get many of the native animals climb the fences? I've seen a quoll go right across, upside down, through the hot wire and down the other side again. Did you get a zap on the way Probably. through? Probably. Yeah. Yeah, but that was his routine. And that's what he did every night. <laughs> in and out, in and out. Yeah, yeah. About 20 years ago, I saw a, an eastern quoll at um, Mark Oliphant Conservation Park just down the road, which would have been an SKP from... From Warrawong. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, quite a few probably went over the fence at the time. What about platypus? There were many reports of platypus down the Onkaparinga River and Allgate Creek. And things like that. Now, um, I don't know if you remember, Adrian, um, Warrawong was a 35 hectare um, 
sorry, 35-acre sanctuary. Then it bought adjacent properties, and the big dam was built uh, down below to supply water and things like that, you know, for the platypus. I can remember, because I lived on that, that second property for a while, and I can remember walking around the big lake one day, and bloop, up comes a platypus. And I thought, what are you doing here? You haven't been released, right? All the platypus were in the fenced area. This was unfenced at the time. And they went around, and bloop, up comes another one. <laughs> and I checked back to make sure it wasn't the same one, and the, the other platypus was there. And by the time I got round to where I started, because it was a circular lake, um, I'd seen three platypus. Mm. So those three platypus had left Warrawong Sanctuary and were now in the big lake. And there was nothing to stop them continue on down the creek and out again. That's a fairly good fence they got around that place. How would they get out? They can climb, believe it climb. or not. They can climb. A boreal yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that can happen. Or again, they're a tunneling animal. You know, they build extensive tunnels for their burrows. Um, they could have come out and just come out on the other side. Who knows? So nobody actually ever saw no one. one ev- no one ever okay. saw one climb. No one ever saw one pop out of a burrow that it shouldn't have. Okay. But they're out. I've heard of echidnas climbing feral proof fences, with, yeah. and they got the same splayed out reptilian legs as a platypus. So yeah, yeah. Think of a echidna could do it. A platypus could possibly yeah. do it. Well, I've seen a potteroo eight, you know, six foot off the ground up a wire fence. They just goes up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cheeky animal. Speaking yeah. about fences, you've been helping us with our yellow-footed rock wallaby enclosure with the... Um, with the electrics. Yeah. The electric wires, Which yeah. Which is yeah. looking amazing. Huh? Yeah, it's getting there. Yeah. Yeah. So you've had a lot of experience building feral-proof fences, and that's become a bit... People call you up all the time and want this done and want that done. and Not so much lately, but um, apart from you. <laughs> 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 um, but, yeah, back in, back in the day, yeah, um, I'd get... Uh, go out and do um, consultation for people for vermin-proof fence building depending on where they were and um, what style of fence I'd recommend, what they were trying to achieve, yeah. After John Wamsley set up Warrawong, and obviously Yukamara, Scotia and all the other ones, a lot of people started following suit and people thought that's the way forward and they started popping up. Has that died off a bit now, do you think? Or? No, I don't think so. I think there's still vermin-proof fences being built at the moment. You know I'm with on the board of fame, Yep. Foundation for Australia's Most Endangered Species. Um, uh, we're funding um, a couple of different projects at the moment which involves vermin-proof fencing. So it's still happening. It's still going on out there. Fantastic. Yeah. Actually, we've had Tracy, the CEO from FAME, on the show. <coughs> yes. And, um, and she referred to the wildlife biologists that assess people's applications for funding. Um, so you're on that board. That I'm on, the, I'm on the, what we call the Conservation Committee which is um, uh, Dr. Fred Ford, uh, Dr. Madeline Willemson and myself. Yeah, they're, they're the board members and that's the Conservation Committee. So we assess the projects that come in asking for money. Do you have any kind of criteria that you, you kind of tick off to...? Too many criteria. Too many. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, yeah, there is. You know, I mean, are they asking for money to do work that the government should be doing anyway? Um, is it new and innovative? Is it really going to help the endangered species? Does it, does it have on-ground works? And we're big on the on-ground works rather than pure research. So yeah, we use all, we apply all that type of criteria to come up with the, to find the projects that we then fund. Yeah, that's great. I think you're the right. As long as, man as, long as they've got good, positive, sustainable outcomes. It's no good saving a space, uh, an endangered species for two years and then not worrying about it anymore. It's got to be, you know, forever. Makes sense. Yeah. I remember something you said to me uh, many years ago. I was working for the South Australian Museum collecting, doing baseline surveys and collecting specimens, mm. reptile specimens. Mm. And you said to me, how, you always got to think, how does this help the species? Or how does this translate to conservation? Yes. Um, and I went, shit, I don't know. <laughs> I was just doing what I was told. That's just what we did, um, and that yeah, that that made me look at what we were doing through those through those glasses was quite interesting. How does it translate to conservation? Yeah, I wonder. I bet that goes through everyone's mind at some point. They're doing something exciting. They think they're helping the environment and everything, 
and then someone points out something like that can be life-changing to what you do from that point onwards I guess yeah very much so mm. yeah yeah I, I tend to be a bit more generalist in the whole ecology conservation thing and my my motto is is that it's not what you do it's what you're doing that's important Right, so long as you're doing something for the environment, for conservation, for wildlife, for endangered species, it doesn't matter what you actually do. Like I build boxes, you know, I build boxes. Like That's what boxes. I do, nesting yeah. boxes. Right, so but that doesn't matter. It's what I'm doing is the the important part. That's just a small part of the overall conservation and wildlife and ecology management thing. So. Not what you do, it's what you're doing. What you're doing. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I get I get to talk to high school kids a lot. Yep. That's part of my job. And I say to them, it doesn't matter what you're going to do, you could become a banker, there might be footy players in the room or whatever they're going to you know, aspire to be. Mm. And you can still be a conservationist. You don't have to be an ecologist. You don't have to grow local native plants. You can be a hairdresser and you, we need all these things, but you can still be a conservationist. You can still... You know, uh, you know, donate to fame. You can still put a nesting box in your garden. You can still, you know, dedicate a part of your property for habitat. Mm. You know, so you don't have to be an ecologist for a living um, to to, to be make a difference. Yeah. I think so. Mm. Yeah. No, everyone can make a difference. Yep. Even if you're in a um, nine to five job, totally unrelated to conservation, wildlife, or anything, you can make a donation to someone who is. Yep, deeply immersed in conservation and wildlife. So you're doing something, you know. But it's nice to have that connection, though, to actually get out there and get your hands dirty and, and do something. Yeah, even just getting out I think that's better. I think that's good for your soul, I think. I think so. Yeah, I think that's yeah. scientifically proven. Yeah. I think a diversity of uh, wildlife and, and plants and things is even better. There's some studies that indicate that, too, mm. which is quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah, even if even if I mean we want people that are going to be bankers and people that are going to earn lots of money, they're the people who really want to be ecologists because they can do so much more than any of us put together because they have the the money to put behind some of these amazing yeah. projects. So we yeah. want well, we want the rich people on board. That's is what, what you're we saying. want. The that's poorer people want. can make differences like separate your rubbish and <laughs> grow a veggie patch and stuff like that. The rich people, we want your money. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, that's where we are at the moment with conservation. It costs money to mm. do it, and lots of money, and you don't always get immediate results. So that's why good planning is important. But you do need the money, you know. People say, oh, everyone gets it gets spent on wages and people's this and that. Well, yes, it does at times. You can't get around that. People have got to work. People have got to live. Um, and, you know, the money gets used for all sorts of different things. The problem is it just costs. Mm. I mean, the quoll, reintroduction of the quolls, western quoll, Judich, uh, up into the western, uh, to the um, Flinders Ranges, um, which happened five years ago now, um, that costs $1.5 million to do. And it's still being funded. There's still um, you know, money being raised to keep that whole thing going. You know, I mean, I, I think bang for buck, it was a great investment of money because I was up there a couple of weeks ago trapping and uh, they caught 50 individual quolls in a yeah, week's wow. trapping. So that means there's quite a few quolls out there. That's great. Yeah, after five years. That's pretty good. So that one and a half million's gone into feral work, mainly, uh, um, is it? Oh, no, it's the whole thing. It was um, getting the quolls from Western Australia to, to South Australia. They were flown over in a chartered aircraft because mm. um, there were 37 quolls. You're not going to fit them in a 737 without, you know... Justin Qantas or someone with a lot of money, so we had to charter. Um, there were the ecologists that monitored them for the first, intensively for the first couple of weeks. Um, then, you know, and that gradually, the frequency of the monitoring sort of got less and less. But that's they still had to do it on a regular basis. Um, there's the staff involved with that. There's uh, all the cat trapping and, um, and baiting that went on because um, the cats just took out so many quolls initially. It was terrible. 
So, you know, there was a big... I think in the end they've taken out like two or 300 cats just from that release area. You know, who's going to survive that? Mm. You know, that many cats, feral cats out there. Anyway, they seem to be on top of all that now, which is good, uh, with baiting programs and things like that, which allowed the release of the possums, the brush-style possums in the area as well. Yeah, so it seems to be working. I don't so that's know. not a fenced-off area. No, no, it's not. But it's had 20 years of fox, rabbit and goat um, management, right? So it's been baited regularly. It's had goats removed. It's had warrens ripped. It's had rabbits baited, etc. So there's been 20 years of, of good land management in that area before you can even, before you can even think about releasing an animal. Wow. Is that Operation Bounce Back? It is, yeah. And to the credit to the South Australian government, really, for keeping that going, you know. Because otherwise that, that quality reintroduction wouldn't happen. There's there's things afoot at the moment to do a similar thing up into the Gammon Ranges, which again is covered under that bounce back footprint. So that could be exciting as well. That's brilliant. Yeah. People are going to Bullpen a Pound in the Flinders Ranges and there's wild quolls being seen around the restaurant. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is good. You know, that's just that's how it should be. Mm. You should be able to go somewhere in the outback of Australia and see Australian wildlife, not rabbits, foxes and cats. Yeah. And in the grand scheme of things, a million and a half for the government isn't that much money, is it, to get things like to that bring going? A, a species, a species back, back to, to the For the government Australia. to do it, no, yeah. no, no. So, yeah, it's, it's not... I mean, just the last 10 or 15 years, the amount of money for the environment from the feds and the state governments has just gone down, 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 down and down, you know. And really it should be ramping up, up, up and up, not going the other way. And I just don't understand that. I really don't. Mm. You know, with this federal election coming up now, oh, there's so much money for schools and health and, you know, everything else. Well, of course there's going to be money for schools, whether you vote for them or the other people. There's going to be it's money got for... To be. <laughs> it's got to be. You know, that's a given, isn't it? Yeah. That there's going to be money for schools and health and education and everything. But they seem to prattle on about that as though that's the end of the story. <laughs> like it's a new idea. Yeah, like it's a new idea. How about some money for the bloody environment for a change? Mm. Well, that Qual project, I mean, that shows you what we've done, what's worked, and let's do it again. I mean, that's kind of exciting. It's not even a mystery. It's like, there it is. It's there happened. it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, uh, there's some provisos with that, though, is that, you know, if it hadn't been for Bounce Back... And, and the intensive fox baiting and rabbit control and goat removal, I mean, that which was originally done for the yellow-footed rock wallabies, right? So they're doing gangbusters now, the yellowfoots. They're doing really, really well. But that initiative has now allowed for other things to come in. You know what I mean? But it takes time. You can't think, oh, we'll go and fox bait tomorrow and then we'll go and release some quolls. You can't do it like that. A couple of weeks, we'll have an Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's sorted. Yeah, done. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, no, it's not going to happen like that. Has the drought affected uh, the animals? Oh, look, it's shocking. The, the, you go up there and there's skinny roos, like I've never seen skinny roos before. And I've just done a trip up to um, uh, the Aleri Ranges, just an overnight or up and back. Um, and the poor old roos, I've never seen a bony-tailed roo before. Mm. You know, normally they've got a nice... That's where their fat store is. It's a nice big fat tail that they have and they draw down on that when times are tough or times must be bloody tough because there's just a row of bones now oh, on these tails. You know, now... That means the eagles are probably doing well because these roos are falling over. You know, they'd be easy to kill um, or they're just dying and they're scavenging. And I reckon also the quolls are probably benefiting from that as well. I know it's a hard, it's not an easy thing to, to imagine, but if you've got a dead roo carcass there and you're a hungry quoll, you're going to do well, aren't you? Yeah, it's strange when you sort of think of a negative, like the kangaroos are suffering, but the, yeah, there's positives that you put There's other well. positives, yeah. I mean, it's all that cycle of life stuff if you mm. want to get esoteric about it, but yeah, mm. yeah. But fame started um, 
1993 with the numbats. Oh, okay. Yeah, because um, we knew November was coming. Like that was the release. That was the release date at Yukamara for the numbats, and the West Australian government said, "Well, you're not getting these numbats for nothing. Fifteen at three thousand dollars each. Wow. That was forty-five thousand dollars. Earth sanctuaries had to raise." To pay for these numbats. Wow. And it was about June or July, I think. And as my memory fades a bit. Um, and I went into John Wamsley. I said, John, what we need is a foundation. You know, like the National Parks have got a foundation. Children's hospitals have got a foundation. Earth Sanctuaries needs a foundation that can raise money. He said... Well, don't just stand there, Bruce. Go and do it. <laughs> so that's when the Earth Sanctuaries Foundation began, right? And I set it up, got all the, pinched someone else's constitution that was on the net somewhere, and just changed the word to say Earth Sanctuaries. Got fifty members fairly quickly. Applied for deductible gift recipient. Um, status so people could make tax deductible donations and so by the November it was all in place wow. all done um, and Earth Sanctuaries when, when Earth Sanctuaries Limited folded Earth Sanctuaries Foundation changed its name to Fame so it's still the same um, organisation okay. yeah. but we raised the money even in that short period um, through, our, through our members and uh, yeah Paid the government their forty-five thousand dollars. Mm. Yeah. Great job, going strong. And yeah, still going twenty-five years later, which is great. That is great. I, I think it's marvelous. Yeah. With the brush-tailed possums, a lot of people don't realise because they have brush-tailed possums in their roof and in their gardens, and they're not doing that great out in the bush, are they? No, no, they're not. Um, and that's pretty evident when you go to Kangaroo Island. They're everywhere and you see them on the ground more than in the trees so but there's no foxes on kangaroo island right and so there's bloody possums everywhere but you go out to you know anywhere out of suburban um australia into the bush you won't see many brush-tailed possums they've 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 managed to adapt to become an urban animal and they're doing very well at that, you know, there's no doubt about that. But in the outback or in the bush, nah, they're not doing very well at all. Um, I was going to ask you about the eastern quolls. When they were released, did you guys put up nesting boxes for them? The eastern quolls? Uh, sorry, sorry, the western quolls. The western the quolls. Yeah. No. Okay. No. No boxes. The possums had boxes yep. when they were released, but the western quolls, no. There was enough, where they were released, there was enough, I'll call it rubbish on the ground, you know, like broken branches, hollow logs, um, that sort of stuff on the ground. And because it's the Flinders Ranges, there's lots of cracks and caves and hollows in the the rock formations. So they were released um, at the base of rock formations virtually, so they could get up into the rocks or, or find themselves a hollow to live in. Okay. And there was uh, that, that had all been assessed before the release, so there was plenty of good habitat and good hidey holes for the quolls. Okay, yeah. Um, and speaking about nesting boxes, and you touched on it earlier, we had Jane Smith on the show, and you build nesting boxes with Jane Smith for his business for nature. Yes, it's my 10th year this year with James. Is that right? Yes, it is. Yeah, wow. yeah. You recently um put up, was it 90 boxes in the Fleura Peninsula for the Western Pygmy Possum, which is in danger? Yeah, we built 90 Pygmy Possum boxes, yeah. um, which went down most of the Fleuria. I know 40 of them, because I went and saw them the other day, were at Newland Head. I'm not sure quite where all the others are put, but they're out there somewhere. And you were, you were telling me about the different materials that the Pygmy Possums use compared to what the Yellow-Footed Antichinus use as nesting materials. Yeah, well, it seems that both species have taken up residence in these lovely little pygmy possum boxes um, and some of them are just solely pygmy possum and you can tell it's a pygmy possum nest because it's been made out of fresh green eucalyptus leaves right which are in the box in a ball and they're still green they still have that green coloration about them 
but when you come across a box that's had an antikinus in it it's all dry stuff dry brown right like bark um, there's feathers in it there's grass in it dry grass um, there's even flagging tape you know from where they've been marking the where the boxes are so it's a real mixture and and so you can tell whether it's an antikinus nest or a pygmy possum nest very easily some have um, layers of antichinus then a pygmy possums come in on top and then an antichinus oh, wow. come on top of that yeah so you can <laughs> see like the predator prey <laughs> the same yeah. That's a bit yeah, yeah 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 i don't know <laughs> the pygmy possum is actually still in there somewhere <laughs> yeah no i don't i don't think they cohabitate very no, well yeah. no. a box and dinner yes. <laughs> wow yeah. we get chocolates like that yeah <laughs> and you get uh, and some of the antichinus or boxes that were used with antichinus, they do little poos on the top. So oh. there'll be a pile of antichinus poo on top of the box. Yeah. I don't know, it must be territory it's thing territory or marketing yeah. thing, mm. scenting thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. quite fascinating though. I've read that antichinus, if you find a bird that's been turned inside out, that's a sign you've got an antichinus in your garden. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Turned little, inside out? Yeah, the little carnivals, but they'll turn a bird inside out and eat all the insides and you'll find an inside out bird. Yeah. Mm. Just a little skin left. Yeah. yeah. So they're in the same family as quolls, but they're like a mouse size. Yes. Yeah, they're desiurids, yeah. yeah. The pygmy possums are lovely. They just eat nectar. Oh, they'll take insects, though. Yes, yeah, they'll probably eat insects. Yeah, but but feed... flowers and nectar feeder. I used to yeah. feed mine crickets and they'd run around and catch them. Yeah. I saw uh, Dr. Alyssa Sparry the other day. Yes. She's been on the show. We, we did some shows together, actually. She got up and talked about the bandicoot. When I got the bandicoot out, she did the bandicoot mm. part of the talk for a, an event down at the forest down the road there. And we were talking about those nesting boxes and when they do a prescribed burn, uh, you can then pick up the boxes with the animals and you can translocate them somewhere else, which is pretty convenient. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I was saying you could bring them here. <laughs> you <would>. <laughs> <laughs> You'll look it's after them for a while, will you? Yeah, I'll look after them. Uh, Would you have had pygmy possums here, Adelaide Hills? Uh, I don't know about here. Antichinus. It's certainly it's certainly antichinus here. Yeah. yeah. Um, someone I was talking to the other day was saying that they might be nearby, but I wasn't buying it. Yeah. Well, they're certainly on the southern Fluria. Yeah. Around Victor and around that area, the bushland around there. There's certainly pygmy possums yeah. down that way. And then probably around towards the Murray, the Murray Mallee. That was always a pygmy possum spot. Yep. And of course, Kangaroo Island's got two species of pygmy possum on it. The western and the little? The little. I mean, you th- imagine a pygmy the possum pygmy and then, awesome. then a little pygmy <laughs> possum. I mean, it's just tiny. It's a joke. Yeah. Yeah. Someone's just recognised yeah. one of the babies and yeah. renamed it. Yeah, I mean, go inside a matchbox, easy. Wow. Yeah, just they are cute little yeah. things. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. the um, the long-tailed pygmy possum up in the Daintree as well. Is there? Haven't seen one of those. I've only seen photos. Yeah. Um, and then there's the eastern pygmy. Yes. And the only other one's the, um, is it the mountain well, the, does, yeah, there's a mountain pygmy possum, yeah. yes, yes. Very and endangered one. Fame's yeah. sponsored some of that oh, really? work with the mountain pygmy possum okay. translocations some years ago too. Yeah, yeah. they're, they're endangered because they're, they're, those um, alpine regions are just shrinking. Yes, they are, yeah. Shrinking because of habitat loss humans or uh, shrinking because of weather warming. change? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Although I did hear that it rained in the western part of Antarctica recently. So really? that's kind of so as that warms, maybe we can start putting all the alpine species yeah. to the <laughs> moving them around. Fifty year plan. Yeah. <laughs> it's all right. We've got a plan. Yeah. <laughs> no worries. Yeah. We just need a million and a half. Yeah, we can do anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Leopard seals might be a problem. There you go. You'll have to cull leopard seals. Yeah, I wouldn't want to get near one to cull it. <laughs> Drop a bomb if you've got to do it. But yeah. get near them. They turn uh, up in Adelaide occasionally. Leopard seals. Yeah. Wow. Vagrant little. Very impressive. Hmm. <laughs> Nice. And there was it the other day a sunfish or something. Oh, I saw a photo of that. Yeah, yeah. it was turned up somewhere. I don't know, the funniest looking thing. Yeah, yeah. How does that survive? Mm. I don't know the first thing about sunfish. No, body, I don't know anything yeah. about them, but I just think they're a strange looking creature. Absolutely. And I just don't know how they defend them. They can't be rapid, fast moving things. How they survive out there with sharks and what have you. Yeah, maybe like they just, taste disgusting. Maybe they do. <laughs> 
That's how koalas survive. <laughs> did, did people ever eat koalas, do you know? I haven't found it in any recipe books so far. Um, Maggie but, Beard. But, but, I mean, they just massacre them for their skins. Yeah, okay. I think, was it, correct me if I'm wrong, and I probably am wrong, but 1936, 1937 was the last year of being able to take koalas for their skins, and that mm. was in Queensland. Other states had sort of said no long before that, but Queensland, I think it was in the mid-1930s anyway, mm. and there was something like 200,000 koalas got shot that year. It's incredible. Yeah. yeah. And they wonder why they're in trouble. You know? Well, that's the... Ironically, 1936 was the year they saw officially the last thylacine, or Tasmanian tiger, yeah. also the same year that they decided to protect it. <laughs> yeah. Good job. Yeah, good, 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 well, good well job. Well played. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. the ones that are out there are now protected. They are now protected. protected. Yeah. Yes. That's yes. right. Which is awesome. So if you're a thylacine, you're in... Not, yeah. you're, you're all right. You can you're come right out. Housing come days. You yeah. come out now. It's all right. Uh, what do you think about that, Bruce? Do you think there's thylacines out there? I hope there are. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. On the mainland, I've got my doubts. Yeah. Um, you get occasional reports of something down the southeast. And look, if they're there, that's fantastic. And mm. good luck to them. But I doubt it somehow. Um, but on Tassie, yeah, always hope that they're there mm. somewhere. Mm. There's enough There's enough sort of odd sightings that happen to keep your hopes up that there's still a thylacine or two because there'd have to be more than one out there. Yeah, you'd want there to be more than one. Yes. Yeah. There may be a colony down the southwest corner there somewhere. So is Tasmania yeah. like just a good undiscovered place? or? Well, that western part that Bruce is talking about, that's that World Heritage listed area. Yeah. I mean, that's... Well, let's put it this way. I, I grew up in Adelaide, and if it says on the map that it's a conservation park, it is. And if it doesn't, it's farmland or, mm. or something else crap. Um, but when I went to Tassie, I was like, oh, there's a bit of conservation. It, the whole bloody western part of it is impenetrable scrub. And I was yes. thinking, like, gee, it wouldn't hurt to clear a bit of this. This is, like, intense, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, that, yeah, I mean, not that I really wanted them to clear any, but it was, yeah, it's quite daunting. Mm. Um, and there's no access, there's very limited access. You can come in round by boat and go up a, you know, a little drowned valley or something like that and get into a river, and that's how they pulled logs out. But road access, there's very little, none virtually. Mm. So it's possible that they could be out there. It is. I mean, I guess the argument is people say they're a pursuit predator, so they they like the open country. But, I mean, they're the ones they saw hunting. Nobody saw them hunting in those environments because no. people mm. didn't go yeah, in there. Yeah, yeah. Is that... <laughs> you just touched on something that just came into my head then. Like, people say, oh, that's their preferred habitat, you know, about any species. Mm. And you think nowadays... I don't think there's such a thing as preferred habitat. Especially with stuff that's endangered and yeah, there isn't yeah, many it, left. You, have no, you, don't, yeah, you really can't the, see how you can know what their preferred habitat is at no, that point. It, it's the bit of ground that they, mm. they're hanging on in, you know, whether that's preferred or not, I don't there's think so. There's probably some biological aspects that you can guess some stuff from, but not yeah. from where they are at that point. Yeah, yeah. yeah that is quite interesting. Yeah, oh, that's their preferred habitat. You know, no, that's where you're finding them now. You know, the, I think the word preferred is, shouldn't be in the equation somehow. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, have you got any projects that are coming up that you're a bit excited about? Uh, yeah. That you can talk about? That I can talk about? Yeah, well, some of them probably don't even know they've been funded yet, so I can't really talk too much <laughs> about it because we only made our decisions on this, this year's funding round um, a, a couple of weeks ago. Oh, okay. So we're just finalising a few of those things yet. And sometimes that means going back to the, the, the person that's put in the proposal and saying, you know, can you modify this, modify that? We need a bit more information. And that hasn't quite finished yet. Um, one I can talk about is another fenced area in central Victoria, um, Orana Park, is, no, is it, it's called, and that'll be a haven for eastern betongs. Oh, great. Yeah, betongia. Okay, Marty, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah I know it at the Tasmanian bit. Yeah, Tasmanian bit on. on the mainland. Yes, yes. But it used to be in the southeast of SA and uh, around the east coast. There. Yes, yeah. Well, that's got to be a eastern Betong sanctuary. Great. Wow. It's a couple of hundred hectares. 
I've been over and had a look. It's wonderful big gum country, you know, that big stately gums. Um, there's some good understory. There's grasslands. It was a farm, and this uh, the, the proponents looking at having a sanctuary, but also on the property there'll be farming activities to help fund the sanctuary. All right? So there's... It's not just a purist no, conservation thing. It's got to be mixed so that you know there's money available it's to manage the conservation. And I think that's more and more the way of the future. That you know, if you're going to have a conservation program, you can't have it in isolation. It's got to be part of something else. You can't rely on handouts. No, you can't rely on handouts. They're a good start. Yep. But you've got to make everything sustainable and self-sufficient eventually. Or else it's just not going to work. It's going to fall over. Yeah. So it's got to have that plan in it. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. And it's, that's got to come from the start. It's yeah. something that can't evolve. I mean, it may do if you're lucky, but you know, you've got to have that sort of plan ahead. You know, that this we're going to build this sanctuary, and this is the way we're going to fund it. That's it all got to be there. Is it going to be fenced? Oh yes, 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 yes. So that'll have um, the fencing's tension. begun. Oh, great. Yes. That's yeah. great news. And yeah. that's got potential for other species to be... Certainly. They've already... The same proponents already asked for money for uh, stone curlews. Oh, cool. Yeah. Eastern, so, Eastern barred bandicoots? Probably. Exciting. Yeah, probably. No reason why not. Yeah, so, you know, once you make a place suitable for one species, then other species can follow. That's, you know, that's just the way it works. Yeah. That's great. Any uh, anything else you can talk about? Um, I just I just think I'm a European. Am I okay to bring a couple of cats and no, sure, <laughs> things sure. to that place? Yeah. A, a white-throated tree creeper going up your stringy bark. Oh yeah, yeah, I love love them. There's yeah. a few around at the moment. Yeah, okay. Yeah, they're great birds. They yeah. are. For those that don't know, they got very long claws and they up they go up up the bark of the stringy bark and they can even go under the branches and be upside down and they're picking around looking for boring insects in the bark yeah no boring insect jokes yeah. you know, I saw that <laughs> I saw the look yeah. oh, we're at um, you know Dean Nichols has the um, Eucalyptus Arboretum yes, yes. At, at Currency Creek and um, he's got that the scribbly gum the scribbly, the scribbly oh, yeah, gum yeah, has yeah. that uh, beautiful wavy scribble wavy lines in the it, bark yeah, from yeah. some larvae of a moth I yes. think but we don't have that moth here, so his scribbly gums just like it looked like every other gum. And <laughs> and I went up to him just after he's finished talking about it. I said, you know, you could make a joke here. You could say, we don't have that moth here, but don't worry because they're boring insects anyway. <laughs> Uh, he didn't incorporate that, it. Did no, he? didn't that? Yeah, no, it's not part of his spiel anymore. No, yeah, <laughs> he, I reckon he uses it. He might be do. mad not to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so anyway, <laughs> where were we? Um, we saw a tree creeper. Yes. I actually got the whole one one day. One was stuck in my laundry at my old house, and I come out. There's a bird flapping around, and I, so I just held it. I didn't know what it was. It was so little. I, I don't mm. recognise this bird, and not until I let it go, and it went straight onto the tree and started doing that behaviour of climbing up the tree that I knew yeah. what it was. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, any, any other projects that you can talk about? Uh, there's ongoing work at Devil Ark. You've heard of Devil oh, Ark? Oh, yeah, 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 we're hopefully heading we're up hopefully there, aren't we? Oh, really? Yeah, it's an amazing place. Tim, Tim Faulkner as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fame put a lot of seed capital into that project. I think it's close to 700000 now mm. um, over the last, say, eight or nine years. Um, and they're looking at moving on we're well not moving on but in, again incorporating more species because they've got a fenced area there's room for other species so they're looking at potteroos and bandicoots and eastern quolls and other things and so we're going to be contributing some funds fame is going to be contributing some funds to that project in the near future that's great yeah for, for their expansion that's a success, yeah. that, that place, because that's worldwide. Everyone knows Devil's Ark. Yeah. I think that's uh, yeah. done well to Well, John, John yeah, Weagle, John Weagle uh, yeah. was on our board for a short time. Oh, right. Yeah, he's a really nice guy. So yeah. he went and done his one big year. Yeah, yeah that's right, he did, didn't he? Didn't he? beat the record in six months or something. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. Should probably get the facts from him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was that? A thousand bird species or something? I can't remember. Yeah. They get a year to spot as many as they. Can. There's a movie, movie yes. about it. Yes, yes, yeah. movie. Jack Black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jack Black. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. John Weigel went and done that. 
And I think he broke the record he did. really quickly, like yeah, half yeah. the time or something, yeah. and then carried on. And there's someone who goes and does that and loves his time, and he still puts money and effort into places like Devil's Ark, yes. which is pretty cool. Yeah, I'd like to get him on the show. It'd be yeah. pretty good. Yeah. It was just amazing there just to see the devils running around. And, uh, and they said, well, you want to see him feeding? And they had a, a dropper in the star picket in the ground and they wired up a, um, the, the top half of a kangaroo to this star picket and these devils come in out of the bush from nowhere, you know, loping in. And I don't know, there must have been six devils on this carcass and it just disintegrated. It was yeah, just wow. ripped to pieces. Their bite pressure's phenomenal, isn't it? I think, I've, I think I've heard something like that as well, where, where someone's put it on TV and they've got that noise of them ripping these things apart. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and it works because they have to feed like that, right? Because if there was one devil and the, the thing wasn't tied down, he'd probably not get much to eat because he'd be pulling on all the bits and the carcasses would just move along. But when you've got three or four pulling in different directions, they're actually helping each other to feed. Oh, that's interesting. Because they're ripping, they can all rip bits off. I thought you were going to say, do you know how you offer a dog food and it's not interested, but then there's another dog and it suddenly wants it? Not that you're going to say that they're, they're competitive, so they eat No, that they, they need a lot of devils feeding on a carcass so they all get a good share in good time. Yeah, they pull it to bits. Mm. And within 10 minutes, this carcass is just about gone. It was incredible. I've never seen anything like it. It's like the, the, the African plains where the lions are doing it with the big prey items, whereas they're doing it with a smaller yeah, yeah, small, yeah, sort yeah, of yeah, scale. Yeah, scale. But they're doing yeah. the same amount of yeah, damage. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the difference Amazing. is when the lions are doing it, the prey animal's going, uh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's a sad thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll edit that out. Yeah. Um, yeah, you bring light to it. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> when, you, when you said they might be getting involved in potteries, I've never seen anybody work with the, the two remaining potteries besides the long nose. So we, I think it's the broad-faced is extinct. Yes. And then the there's the long-footed. And then there's Gilberts. And the Gilberts, which was rediscovered on a Quokka survey in the 80s or 90s or something. Yeah. Um, there's, from what I heard, there's um, there's work being done with the Gilberts Potteroo in WA and they're moving them to some offshore islands. Interesting. That's about all I know about it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But that was a good five or six years ago. Um, oh, that's right. I remember I supplied some potteroos to a, for a surrogate mother scheme for oh. Gilberts. Yeah. Okay. I don't know how that went. Yep. But anyway, that was some okay. time ago as well. Like they do with the rock wallabies. Yes, exactly. They say broadface yeah. are extinct. Yeah. The broadface, yeah, so we had four species. They're not even in captivity. Now we have no, no, they're gone. They're gone. Yeah. Gone. gone. Unless they're rediscovered like the Gilberts was. Mm. Yeah. We haven't lost any of our betongs, though. They're all still somewhere. All five betongs are still somewhere. Somewhere. Yeah. 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 But what, all five were here once? We had three in SA. Three of them. Yeah. Um, one in the Daintree and uh, one on the East Coast, the Rufus Betong on the East Coast. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. They're all extant somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And same with the quails. Yeah. All four quails. Do you know quals. anyone doing anything with stick nest rats lately? Only arid recovery. Only arid recovery, yeah. yeah. They seem to have dropped off the radar a bit. Yeah, okay. They were all a big thing 20 years ago. Were they? Stick nest rats. Oh, yeah, everyone had that one. <laughs> Did people keep them? People <laughs> keeping them? No? <laughs> no they, were, they were just high up in the conservation circles. Okay. Yeah, you know, breeding and releasing. and But I, I don't know of any, apart from arid recovery, I don't know of any successful releases of stick nest rats. Yeah, okay. I think to try and save something like that, you need to change its name to start with, didn't you? Like they did with the water rat. rat. No, it's like, what is it now, Rakali or something like that? Mm. Given it the indigenous name, just Maybe. automatically if people think rat. Rat, yeah. Have you ever seen a stick nest rat? No, I haven't. I've seen... They're, um, they're wonderful. They're, they're quite round and plump and yeah, just a mm. fantastic little animal. They really are. They build these massive stick nests mm. anywhere, like in caves and... In the back of fridges. And there's still a lot of their nests around the Flinders because we yeah, had yeah. the sub-fossil expert Graham Medlin on the show. Yeah, you know Graham? Yeah. No, yeah. I, don't, I haven't met him. He goes up looking through the stick nest yeah. rat nest, doesn't he, looking for yeah. sub-fossils. 
Mm. See, and I think that's something that could go back into the Flinders now. Now that we know quolls mm. are there and possums are there and there's the management umbrella over the top of that, something like stick nest rats could probably be thought about at least anyway. That would be good. Yeah. 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 So there is I'm, some good so news. I, my, 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 I want to plant seeds at the moment about stick nest rats again. I'm going to start stirring the pot a bit. <laughs> get get people thinking. He's a stick rat nest uh, rat breeder. A stick nest rat breeder. Yeah, yeah. that's what he is. Just he's got it's too many now. He's got to sell some of them. <laughs> <laughs> I think the price yeah, 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 is stockpiling. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. I just think they've dropped off the radar. Yeah, okay, that's uh, that's a good point. Uh, over the yeah. last few years, the last say ten years, and I think they should be. Lifted up again. Yeah, maybe we can find out there. Uh, maybe the Adamutna people had a, a word for them. We could we could steal. I'm sure it. they have. It's got to be sexier than stickness rat. Yeah, I don't mind stickness rat. <laughs> just it's like, rat. It's like, the rat it's, word that just puts yeah, people off. Yeah, like there's pebble mouse mouse and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I don't think people are as bothered about a mouse than they are as like with a rat. I don't like rats. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, it is a, it is a perception problem, mm. isn't it? Mm. Well, yeah. I mean, last night I had a slug expert here. Yeah. And, um, and I did. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Not a joke. <laughs> and she used to um, work with those, uh, you may have heard of those bright pink slugs. I think that they might be an alpine species as well, well and their habitat's decreasing because of global warming. I, so, didn't, I didn't think there were any native slugs in South Australia. I don't know. Or is that up for debate? She, well, the only ones that she is Not breeding now are those introduced leopard slugs. Yes. So I, that's a very good, very all good introduced. question. I think that all those leopard slugs are introduced. Wow. Yes. Yeah. And I think every slug in South Australia is introduced. Wow, there you go. Oh, she yeah. didn't tell me that. Yeah. That's, that. yeah, I didn't know that. I don't know of any native ones. Okay. I'll stand to be corrected, of course. No, I, I don't know. That's, I don't. That's, um, bring back a slug. Yeah, bring, well, I mean, I, I did mention fame because she she would love to breed in captivity those bright pink slugs before they go extinct. Are they native? Yeah, not to here, but they're from from an alpine the world. Some yeah, yeah the world. The they're, yeah, they're from planet Earth. I think I was yeah. drifting in and out. No, they, they certainly are. Uh, somewhere in the east coast, maybe New South Wales. I have to look that up. Um, and she and she also breeds planarians. Um, flatworms. Flatworms. Yeah. Yeah, she had like little local native flatworms here, the little black ones. And and I told her I've got those yellow ones here. Yeah, the stripy ones. Yeah, with the purple yeah, stripes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And she's like, oh my God, can you get me some? So maybe. Maybe. <laughs> you got <laughs> a permit for you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> need, need a tight permit. <laughs> yeah, that's right. What are you running? We're not poaching worms now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and apparently there's a pink form of that one too. I think I've seen that through okay. here. Well, she would Pinkish love one. you. Yeah. 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 So that's how you get in with the girls, is it? Show me a flatworm. Show me a nice pink flatworm. <laughs> but those planarians are interesting, those flatworms, because you can chop them into sections and each section will grow a whole new animal. So just, just from a, a middle piece, it'll grow a head and a tail. Like you, you can what? grow them by segmentation. So, so if you a, cut the head off and the tail off, it, the head will grow a body, will the middle grow. bit will grow a head and a tail. What? Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, so they'll never go extinct then. No, well, hopefully not. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> they're take, they gonna take take over the world. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they have, but nobody knows. <laughs> We're ignorant to it. Yeah, they're just sitting there, sitting back, going, "Yeah, the time is coming." Yeah, yeah. Bruce. Once again, mate, thanks so much for thank coming you, on, buddy. Bruce. Yeah, yeah uh, thanks, Steve. Thanks, Adrian. Thanks for having me here. And guys, thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>